Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst uh, here at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Thank you all for coming. Uh, before proceeding with today's forum, I thought I would give you an update for those of you who have not seen the news that uh, uh, the Zimbabwean opposition movement for democratic change uh, is now officially uh, constituting a majority in the Zimbabwean parliament, uh, which is the first time in uh, 28 years that the ruling Zanupi have lost power. And, of course, uh, although doubts remained about the presidential contest, and the presidency is an incredibly important and powerful uh, position in Zimbabwe, I, I have no doubt that uh, this latest development is a, a very positive step uh, on the road to uh, freedom in that country. My friend and colleague and a man from whom I uh, learned a great deal, George Aite, um, is not here. He's on his way, and he will be with us shortly. But um, in his work, George likes to distinguish between uh, modern and informal sectors of the African economy. He believes that the modern sector is uh, pretty much lost. It is corrupt, it is inefficient, it is failing. Most of the innovation and economic activity in Africa, George says, happens within the informal sectors of the economy. But what if what applies to African economies also applies to African governments? What if underneath the layer of inefficient, corrupt, and predatory governments that were left behind by the departing colonial powers, there remain the remnants of a pre-colonial system of government that is more in line with African traditional values and African traditions. Does foreign aid and other assistance that Western governments lavish on Africa Foreign aid and Western assistance, which is geared toward working with these failing and corrupt African governments, does it prevent the emergence of government structures that would be more in line with the needs of the African people? These are the sorts of questions that will be addressed by our distinguished panel today. Edward Lutwak is a senior associate with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He had served as consultant to the United States National Security Council, the White House Chief of Staff, the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of State, and several European governments. He has taught at Johns Hopkins University and has been an invited lecturer at universities, research centers, and war colleges throughout the world. His books, including Strategy, The Logic of War and Peace, The Grand Strategy of the Roman Empire, and Turbo Capitalism are published in the United States and in Great Britain and have also appeared in 21 different languages. He has recently completed the strategy of the Byzantine Empire. Edward Lutwak had studied at the London School of Economics, Johns Hopkins University, and University of Bath. He reads, writes uh, very prolifically, and speaks, I believe, as I've just witnessed, uh, several languages. And it's with that that I would like to welcome him to the Cato Institute. Uh, my real qualification is that uh, I have um, 
um, African relatives. There is an African side to my family, and that has been for many decades. And uh, this alone has brought me in contact with different parts of Africa over the years, and uh, I have a particular interest in it, which is beyond that of an analyst. Um, there are some uh, there are some difficulties in in dealing with the issue of sub-Saharan Africa, which is our subject. First, um, uh, a lot of people have never been there, and those and they know little. The ones who've been there know less because when they get there, they get shocked by whatever they encounter. In fact, I often advise people who have who are planning to go from Chicago to Ghana or something like that, I say, why don't you stop over in London for a week or so to, to, so you get used to something other than your, your suburbs of Chicago. There are issues of travel narrows the mind, and a lot of the misinformation about Africa is from people who've been there once or been to one place. Some people react to the shock different, uh, in different ways. I mean, for example, for many years, uh, Japanese corporations just never stepped foot. They wouldn't do anything with sub-Saharan Africa. They didn't compute in Japanese terms. And they couldn't understand it, so they just stayed away. They did less harm that way. Now, there are issues about uh, the diversities in sub-Saharan Africa are enormous, of course, as we all know. Uh, but there are some issues of moral economy which are some fundamental dimensions that seem to be uh, pervasive. And uh, you encounter that when you are hanging around um, airports and so on and you talk to white people who live in Africa. They'll do all kinds of different things. And the thing is, you say to them, why do you live in this goddamn awful place I'm just leaving and so on? And he says, well, you don't understand. In fact, there are lots of people who live there who find it difficult to live anywhere else who have plugged into a particular moral economy. The outside world saw some of that when there was um, a whole lifetime ago, there was um, a, a fairly cruel war in, in Kenya, which was then followed by the settling down of the, the population there, including the white settlers in Kenya, in a situation of, of uh, perfect tranquility, amity, and so on. Much, much more recently, in a country just mentioned in Rhodesia, there was a whole war fought in Rhodesia by the Rhodesian government, which was in order to maintain the principle of white rule in Rhodesia. That war came to an end, and instead of uh, deportations, massacres, exile, and so on, what happened was that people simply continued living as before. Ian Smith, who had, been, who had led the, uh, the white government in Rhodesia, simply went back to his farm, and I actually visited him once in this farm for some silly reason. And uh, yeah, he was living in a farm in a state of complete uh, tranquility and so on. This is obviously, these are all things that you wouldn't encounter in, uh, in the Middle East and you wouldn't encounter many other places. Uh, the, the, and, and this arises from some profound dimension of the moral economy of African life uh, manifest in quite different places. In fact, the only exception to this rule uh, was, of course, Belgium. Uh, Belgium, Congo, you know, co uh, Belgium is the Congo of Europe, and the, once the Congo used to be the Belgium of Africa, and in the course of Belgianizing the Congo, or superficially trying to do so, there was a, a spectacular degree of cruelty, and that's why 
there was a lot of uh, uh, violence against whites and so on. But the, this fact, these little episodes are very indicative about a hidden dimension of African life, which explains why so many expatriates scattered around Africa find it difficult to leave the place. There is something that is very appealing. Now, my specific subject has to do with the role of the state today in African life today. And um, the, the, in economic terms, it can be reduced to the proposition that states are too expensive. Uh, they're too expensive for these, for these uh, populations. Um, and uh, the, the phenomenon, uh, this is a, actually arises from a dimension of history which, strangely enough, has not really attracted much attention until uh, recent decades. And I mean global history and global attention. And that is the emergence of the state, the emergence of the state, the creation of the state. And this was a, a, a rather indirect process, because first, in the uh, in what in uh, there, there was the emergence uh, of the distinction between society and the state and government put together. State and government are here, society there. The actual very discovery of the term, you know, goes back to Thomas Aquinas, who invented this phrase "civil society." All he was trying to do was to translate the Greek polis because he was trying to write out this kind of political science, you know, Aristotle and so on. But you have the invention of the concept of something other than state and government. There is state and government, there is us. That was the first step. And then it took centuries for another very powerful distinction to emerge, and that is between government and state. The state, the machine there, which collects taxes, maintains structures, institutions, and then there are the people who happen to rule it. Now, this, this is a colossal distinction, and is the basis for the functioning of, the, of a state that is not a predatory, parasitical, and harmful entity. Um, the, the, the discovery that you could be appointed Minister of Finance, Ministry of the Treasury, as it's called in many countries, and you don't have the right to open the box, take the gold out, put it in your pocket, and give it to your family members. For this to, be, to emerge, you had to have a distinction between government and state. It took centuries for this to be achieved in European terms. It was achieved in different ways, um, in, in uh, non-European cultures to a different extent, and because of that, you have had the construction of, of institutions. But this is something that, that is, was, even historians sort of were, had overlooked and did not study this whole phenomenon until, as I say, about 30 years ago, when first people started sitting down and writing not the history of France or the history of Portugal, but the history of the state how states emerged, how states were formed in early modern Europe and other comparable places, looking at China, India, and usual places, and so on. And this, this process had three dimensions to it. One was the political struggle, of course, between communes and feudal lords and kings and so on, and the creation of institution. And this is all in the realm of formal political history. All those bits and pieces can be recovered. But the second aspect of it, much harder to discover, is again something that 
has been historians have only started sort of working on, really in the last 20, 25 years, has with the emergence of the underlying mentality that made this important. The mentality, philosophy, ideologies that made it important. Why was it that Mr. Smith becomes Minister of Finance and doesn't take the, open the box and takes the money and runs with it? It was because Mr. Smith had acquired a, a moral superstructure, was working in a society which was governed by the moral superstructure, and for him to do that was, was, was something that was, not, was immoral, illegal, unethical, destroyed his whole self-image and all the rest of it. Now, to accomplish that, you first had to subordinate <laughs> and cast aside something which was very powerful and very elemental, and that is simply familism, familism. The, uh, the familism that you see, uh, which emerges as the subtext of the news uh, in the Middle East every other week, and familism, which is the notion that your moral duty, your moral duty is to uh, support, uphold, defend, feed, protect your family. Now, it's interesting that in the 1950s, American sociologists studying not Africa, but Southern Europe, uh, came up, Banfield, came up with this phrase called amoral familism. That is to say, a gentleman comes from the United States of America, Wisconsin or wherever it was, goes to Lucania in southern Italy, where the state has never done anything positive for anybody, where the state only functions as a negative. But he goes there and he in, in, invents the phrase amoral familism to condemn the tendency of people in Lucania who command bits of the state to get appointed to exalted positions like chief nurse of a hospital to turn that appointment into a source of income for her and her family. So in Wisconsin, the state works very well. Serving the state is the morally, ethically right, right thing to do. Now, if you go to a situation where the state is a negative and doesn't serve anybody, for this nurse not to steal, for the chief nurse not to steal medical supplies from the hospital to feed a family means actually to allowing some potentate in control of the health bureaucracy to take it all for himself. In other words, it's not amoral familism, which is the big thing, but it's actually familism. And it took centuries for the structures and superstructure of Europe imperfectly, imperfectly to subordinate familism to the cult, to the religion, to the worship of the state. And then, of course, the distinction between state and government emerging from it. So this is a very complex process. Instead of any of these things, what happened is that one sunny day or last sunny day in 1960, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, when it was, there was a nice ceremony. The flags were raised, another flag was there, and the colonial state said bye-bye and left. The colonial state left the colonial state remained because what happened was that the colonial governors got on board their frigates, corvettes, or aeroplanes and left behind the state structure. They left behind the state structure without any of the moral and ethical, political, social superstructure that made that state functioning. And therefore, what you had from the beginning was a, 
a a process of almost sort of like uh, sort of like a, a a telluric dislocation. What happens is when you have an earthquake, a slow moving earthquake that displaces structures. You had the state superstructure, and below it you had society and culture functioning according to the ancestral mechanism of all of humanity, of all of humanity. That's why when you run into people in Lagos and you say, how the hell can you live here? And he says, well, you know, I'm a Swede, actually, but I got used to living in Lagos. I can't go back to Sweden anymore because people in Sweden are so cold and inhuman, robotic, and they don't really alive. So here they're alive. These are human beings. This is called familism. Familism, the moral, the moral mechanism which has kept humanity going in the whole of human history except for very recent times in very recent ways, as a result of particular things. Now, what happens, of course, is that familism uh, then colonializes the state. And that is how it comes about that policemen don't police. Instead, their power, they use their power, their uniform, and their weapon, or their, their presence, to extort money from whoever they can. I remember once I was in Ghana visiting one of my African relatives, and a policeman tried to get, get the driver to pay a fine. And we were stuck in a traffic jam. And what was the fine for? Speeding. And that was because that was the only thing he knew about was a speeding fine while you're sitting stuck in traffic. What that policeman was doing is in, he was doing something that viewed from Wisconsin or Sweden is absurd, but viewed in African terms, or indeed humane terms, human terms, the natural terms of humanity throughout history, except for those brief exceptions, recent uh, change. It was simply using what he had, which was he didn't have a plow, he didn't have an animal, didn't have a fishing boat or net, using what he had to feed him his family. And thereby, policemen don't police. Soldiers, of course, have heavier weapons than policemen. They have rifles, automatic rifles these days. And so they extract what they can by setting up checkpoints and so on. The one thing an African soldier will not do is to fight to defend this country, to do the function of a soldier. They will never fight to defend the country. No African country has ever had it being protected from invasion, aggression from anybody by its army. There's no such phenomenon. The purpose of being a, a soldier is to extract money from whoever you can, however you can. Sometimes in sophisticated political administrative ways, as we've seen recently in some countries, in other times simply by you and your comrades setting up a checkpoint. Anybody who comes along with wheels has got money, you stop him, you take the money from him. The, then you have, of course, the teacher. Uh, teachers don't have guns, but what teachers do is they get a salary. A salary and they don't teach. Uh, you can go into a classroom and you see a teacher uh, in front of the children sitting there sleeping because he's had a long night. Maybe he has two jobs. Maybe he was out to have fun. But whatever it is, t being a teacher... Once you become a teacher, you have acquired the ownership of a stream of teacher pay. And that is yours to have and to use and distribute and according to the prevailing morality, which is familism. And the doctor, the doctor is supposed to give you a vaccination for free, uh, charges you for it, and he is not going to waste his time, uh, you know, ensuring that the, the syringe uh, is is probably, uh, you know, is not good to... Uh, so you might 
pay for it and also get AIDS in a bargain when you're trying to get vaccine. This is the inevitable process of having state structures without having the ideology that makes state structures functional. So if you look, if you start doing numbers and things and uh, realizing what happens, then you, you, you say to yourself that perhaps this was the greatest crime of colonialism. It was that when they left, they didn't take the state with them. They didn't demolish the state, didn't disarm the soldiers, abolish the police, and say, sorry, we came, we're going to bring it back the way it was. It's like moving into an apartment that isn't yours and then messing it up and leaving incomprehensible machines in all the rooms that can't be disconnected, making it sort of even harder to live. And then we have AIDS. The interesting phenomenon about AIDS is that Aid is the usual process of governments, of states, taking uh, your money and spending it somewhere else. And in this case, spending it very far away so that you cannot see what happens. And aid comes in different categories. The best kind of aid is where the money gets stolen at source. Because, for example, the Italians used to have an educational program in Somalia where the teachers, the Italian teachers who were sent to Somalia were getting paid... Uh, one year's salary each month. Uh, they were getting 12 times the salary, so it became a racket run by the Socialist Party of Italy. If you were a, a teacher and a socialist, you could make a lot of money by going to pretend to teach in Somalia. This is stealing a source. Why do I say it's better? Because a lot of the aid projects have been disastrously destructive of wealth. The they've been the, many of them have been the subject of detailed monographic statistical studies, some of them long-term studies, and the, the egregious cases are really quite phenomenal, such as the cases where you go into a riverine uh, situation in, in French West Africa where there was a harmonious, a harmonious interchange between fishermen on the river pastoral people who came to graze their animals after the harvest so that you had farmers, fishermen, and pastoral people using the same river valley and prospering with it. By the time the aid project had finished with its little bit of uh, little damming, little canalization, and the, the, the bringing rice, rice there, what happened is no fishermen, no farmers, no pastoralists. Instead, you have a rice cultivation that belongs to some politician in town. And after a few years, it gets abandoned. So the aid money that is stolen at source by being given to expensive consultants back in the in Washington, D.C., or, or Oslo, or simply diverted by, you know, by... And so that does less harm than the projects which have gone... Why well, I myself uh, fortuitously intercepted the project which was introducing some wonderfully improved seeds in a particular situation in Africa that I was connected to for my family. And if these people had used those wonderfully improved seeds, they would all have died of hunger because the seeds were indeed very productive, but nobody had checked against the nematodes in the soil. So in other words, now, what is interesting about these aid projects is the unwillingness to audit them. In Norway, a couple of years ago, people made an attempt to have an audit of all the Norwegian aid programs, because the Norwegians you know, have done spectacular things like turning, uh, trying to get the Karamoya pastoralists in eastern Kenya to become... Um, the Lake Victoria fishermen and built a frozen fish plant there. The result is no fish, no frozen, no fishing, no pastoral, no nothing except a group of Karamoyas who have been turned into mendicants. The, 
the attempt was made to start an audit just of the Norwegian aid project and to see what they have wrought. And the outcome of that was a gigantic scandal because what happened was that the people proposing the aid project uh, were immediately attacked as fascist, Nazis, racist, racialist, and so on. And the funny thing is that these, of course, were the only Norwegians who had spent real time in Africa, who had real connections and commitments and liked the place and so on. And the people who were against it are the people for whom it wants to remain an abstraction. So what we have here is a lot of failed projects. Some have been successful incidentally because they've generated expertise, but most have failed. But the real macro effect is much more important than the micros. And the macro effect has been in direct, indirect ways to sustain the African state, which is to allow the African state to continue instead of undergoing a natural evolution, which is disintegration, disappearance of the state, which would then make it possible for the emergence of organic African political entities. We have cases in point. If you travel in Congo, to, uh, I went along uh, with some uh, people who are interested in some weird animals. Uh, you travel in Congo beyond where the state has completely disappeared. Because, as you all know, river navigation has been very restricted. The roads no longer have been overgrown and all that. And you go beyond the state, what you find is not a savage place where people are chasing people to eat them. What you find is the only villages in the Congo which are functioning, where people are living quietly and productively, and where you don't need three machine guns to protect yourself where there are no policemen and no soldiers and so on. So what the aid is most culpable of all is that not through the micro failures, but the total effect is to sustain the state because the states batten from it, states supporting elites benefit from it, they are legitimized by it, and so on. So the actual, if anybody cared about Africa, what they really would want to do is to do the very opposite, do everything possible to bring about the disappearance of the state, not only because it is parasitical and exploitative, but because it blocks the emergence of the organic entities which are waiting to emerge, which arise from that moral economy I was telling you about, the moral economy which allows an Ian Smith to be the head of the white supremacist government of Rhodesia and upon being defeated to simply go back to his farm and live in tranquility and amity and security. So there is a moral economy that will sustain it, and that is what will be released. Thank you. Well, what can I say? We, we call this forum a radical solution to underdevelopment. And uh, as I like to say to my colleagues, if you can't say it at Cato, there is nowhere else where you can say it. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Um, our next speaker is um, one of my favorite Africanists, uh, George Aite. Uh, Dr. Aite is a native of Ghana. He's a distinguished economist at American University and president of the Free Africa Foundation, both in Washington, D.C. He obtained bachelor's in economics at the University of Ghana, master's in economics at the University of Western Ontario, um, and uh, his Ph.D. from University in Manitoba in Canada. 
He was nominated for the Africa Prize for Leadership by the Times of London newspaper and was a national fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University as well as a Bradley Scholar at the Heritage Foundation. He's an authority on Africa who has written several books about the continent, including Africa Betrayed, which won the H.L. Mencken Award for the best book in uh, 1992. And his latest book, of course, is the acclaimed Africa Unchained. He's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times, and uh, he's a friend, and I'm really pleased to welcome him once again to the Cato Institute. Um, first of all, uh, let me uh, thank the Cato Institute and also Marion for putting together this conference. And um, I must say that the topic is very provocative. And it, a topic like this is needed because we need, in my view, a completely new way of thinking about Africa. But before I say anything, I'd like to uh, uh, tell Ed that there is a way of handling Ghanaian police when you're caught speeding. I was once stopped by a Ghanaian police for speeding. And when I got out of the car, he said, Sir, you're doing 40 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. And I said, no, I was doing 55. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. You know, you can go. <laughs> um, this topic about letting African collapsing, failing African governments fail, <clears throat> like I said, is very seductive and very, very appealing. And those who think along those lines, you can't blame them. I mean, look it. Since independence, the West has pumped more than $450 billion in aid to Africa with nothing to show for it. And it is extremely difficult to argue for the case of more aid. Now... <clears throat> If you look, <clears throat> take Somalia, for example. Somalia, back in 1991, used to be called the graveyard of aid. All that aid which was poured into Somalia was not enough to save that country. And then, in 1991, the international community mounted Operation Rescue when Somalia collapsed. Operation Rescue to try and save Somalia. And that humanitarian mission cost the international community $3.5 billion. Okay? Of course, when you, when you hear international community, it means read the United States. Okay? Now, having been burned in Somalia, the international community was very, very leery of getting itself involved in Rwanda. So when Rwanda blew up, even the United Nations didn't want to get involved. Now, 
The time then has come for um, the collapse of these African countries and governments to be reassessed. Now, if we say that we're not going to help failing African governments, for example, one of the things which we must realize is that this particular policy, I call this particular policy penny-wise and pound-foolish. Penny-wise and pound-foolish is because when you have a failing African government and we don't do anything to save them, okay, let's assume that they collapse. Now, the collapse of the country creates, let's say, chaos, anarchy, destruction, etc., etc. Now, that destruction and chaos and anarchy, it's important to remember this, and I can find to that particular country alone, refugees stream across borders, and they place strains on neighboring, the social services of neighboring countries. Tanzania is a perfect example where it's been a home to, of, uh, to many, many millions and thousands of refugees, okay? Now, <clears throat> Zimbabwe is also another classic example. Now, the turmoil in Zimbabwe has driven investors out of the Southern African region. And as a matter of fact, the turmoil has caused more than 35 billion dollars in economic damage to the economies of the surrounding countries. You can also uh, uh, blame the woes of the South African rand, and even the Kenyan shilling on the turmoil in Zimbabwe. Now, <clears throat> when you have the chaos and the anarchy spreading to other African countries, okay? Now remember this, it is exactly the same international community which will be called upon to help the refugee problems in the neighboring countries. So in other words, if a failing African government, if we do nothing to help a failing African government, okay, and the government collapses, in the end, we are the same international community which are asked to come and pick up the pieces. Another example is Darfur, Sudan, for example. Now we have the European Union sending troops into Sudan. Now the point which I want to emphasize is that I firmly believe in this principle. Prevention is better than kill. So how do we prevent these countries or these governments from failing in the first place? That's what, in my view, that's where the focus should be. And don't get me wrong. Trying to prevent these countries from, these governments from collapsing doesn't mean that we should hand aid money to them, as we have been doing before. Because we know that the tons and tons of aid money that we gave these governments never helped. What happened was that the monies that we gave to them, as one of the African leaders, who can even manage to give their people far more aid than what they get from the West. One of the things which you should remember is that the African Union 
back in 2005, determined that corruption alone cost Africa $148 billion a year. Corruption alone, $148 billion a year. Now compare that to the foreign aid Africa receives from all sources. Foreign aid Africa receives from all sources, it's $25 billion. Now, which means that the foreign aid resources that Africa desperately needs can be found in Africa itself. Africa really doesn't need aid. But in this country, in this, in this uh, town, for example, it is extremely difficult to make the case for less aid to Africa. Extremely difficult. Now, believe me, for the past 20 years, I've been singing this particular tune. It got us nowhere. Now, look, the Bush administration has quadrupled aid to Africa. So no more aid, no more aid to Africa sounds like a broken record. Okay? Second, if you sing that particular tune, you're often accused of being stingy, not wanting to help Africa. So the mandate that we have, we need a new paradigm. How do we save, prevent African governments from collapsing without following the same old failed aid paradigm? Now, what I'll suggest is that a new concept that I'll throw at you is what I call smart aid. Smart aid is that which empowers the African people. Now, first of all, if you want to prevent an African government from collapsing, <coughs> the three things that we need to do in Africa, it's reform, reform, reform. What type of reform do we need? We need political reform. We need economic reform. And we also need intellectual reform. But our leadership is not interested. Period. See, so you tell them to cut government spending. And it will set up a ministry of less government spending. They're not interested. So the old paradigm was when the Western donors gave these governments, okay, millions of aid money to encourage them to reform. They didn't. They took the money and did the learning boogie, one step forward, three steps back. Now, what that tells us is that, look, if we, if we really want to reform and save these African governments from collapsing, okay, we should not be looking at the governments. We rather should be looking at civil society as Ed said. And for civil society to do its job, as a matter of fact, smart aid is that which empowers the African people to instigate reform from within. And in order for them to do so, they need five critical institutions. They need to have an independent media. Independent media doesn't exist in many African countries. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Look at Zimbabwe, for example. Also need an independent central bank. 
The World Bank is not going to deal with any African country which does not have a central bank, for example. Also need an independent judiciary for the rule of law. <coughs> and we also need neutral and professional armed forces, as well as an efficient <coughs> civil service and an independent electoral commission. If you gave Africans these six critical institutions, they themselves would cast out of government, and they themselves would reform what in Africa we call the vampire state. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, George. Thank you. Mauro De Lorenzo, our next speaker, is a resident fellow in uh, foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. His research focuses on strategic aspects of foreign aid, entrepreneurship, and business climate reform in developing countries. He is preparing, as we speak, a monograph on uh, comparing four developing countries that are making it easier to do business and the lessons they offer for U.S. development policy. In 2005, he worked with Afghan construction companies in Kabul, and prior to that research, uh, he was um, a research associate, uh, and prior to that, he was a research associate at both the American University in Cairo and Makerere Institute of Social Research in Kampala, Uganda. In 2002, he researched and uh, was associate producer of The Price of Aid, a BBC documentary about food aid and misdiagnosis of famine in Africa. He studied linguistics and uh, cognitive science at the University of Delaware and development studies and social anthropology at the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. He's been conducting research in Uganda, Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, and Tanzania since 1998. Since 2007, he's been a member of the Brandhurst Foundation uh, and a presidential Foundation's presidential advisory teams for Rwanda and Liberia, and he also serves on the board of directors of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Mm -hmm. Please help me welcome Mauro De Lorenzo. Thank you very much. Let me issue an immediate correction. I don't serve on the board of directors of the MCC. I'm the assistant to somebody who does, um, who's Senator uh, Bill Frist, so I'm the note-taker, not the, not the board <laughs> member. Um, I have a few jumbled thoughts, really, in response to what um, Edward Ludwak said, and, um, and George Aite. Um, the, the first is that the idea of letting African states collapse is obviously preposterous. I mean, for, either for, from a practical perspective and any number of ways you want to think about it, and it perhaps even uh, uh, has some moral issues as well. Um, but it's preposterous in ways which I think are very clarifying and important and interesting. Um, first, it clarifies that we apparently still think that we are the ones somehow saving these states from collapse and that it's within our power uh, to do so. Um, it suggests that there's a real choice to be made, right, that, um, that when we're faced with a, with a disintegrating state that we would in fact act or that if we decided to act we would have any idea what to do uh, and that the remedies we would try and apply would matter. Um, the fact that what we do and what we talk about doing ourselves is what's most visible and, and, and uh, apparent to us doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important thing. Um, 
and there's this tendency. Um, I mean, and all of those are assumptions. I think that that can be questioned. Um, I could talk at length about the DRC where I've spent um, uh, a number of years. Um, uh, uh, we will find some time for some for, for some except uh, uh, for, for some examples. But uh, I know we want to have time for discussion. But the tendency, or the what this expresses, is a, a tendency we always talk about to keep ourselves at the center of the picture, at the center of the debate. It's about us, what we do or don't do. It's about our institutions, our governments, um, and Africa as a sort of. Our African people and organizations and political movements as historical actors in their own uh, destiny is minimized and, and uh, reduced in the process, a theme that I'll uh, return to in a second. Um, it's important. We shouldn't overestimate um, our influence or importance in Africa. Um, it's what we do, what the UN does is really particularly decisive when looked at from the ground. Um, uh, but it's also becoming, I think, because of new communications technologies, the internet, harder and harder to maintain this monopoly on the production of knowledge and opinion about Africa. Um, it's much easier than it ever was before to be well-informed about what's going on um, by looking at voices which don't come out of the same uh, sort of D.C. or New York or London-based complex of, of analysis, which is often usually written by Westerners anyway. Um, uh, the real question, in my view, that we should be asking is not whether we somehow allow or, or act to prevent states from collapsing, um, but whether it damages Africa's long-term prospects that the international system no longer allows weak states to be absorbed by stronger states. Um, in fact, whether um, uh, uh, you know whether uh, there can be reconfigurations in the African political space that take account of how realities have changed since 1885 or since 1960. Um, that's not the situation we have. Um, you have, and so you have a discontinuity between uh, uh, the historical pattern of state formation in Africa, which is that the boundaries of the state are the extent of the extent to which the, the center can project its power. Um, those realities were in many cases frozen in 1885. You have, for example, Sudan, which is in, in its shape is simply the, the, the extent at that time of slave raiding caravans from Khartoum in all directions. And then that was frozen and that became Sudan uh, with all of its peoples involved. Um, uh, similarly, states which are natural in some sense like Rwanda, which are an actual existing polity that was there before – it's frozen in time at, as it looked when, the, when that boundary was fixed in 1910. It was fixed a bit later than other boundaries. Um, those sorts of uh, alterations, reconfigurations, are no longer possible. Um, uh, if you look back at the history of European state formation, it's a long story of small, weak units being absorbed into stronger and stronger ones um, over time. And that sort of history, that sort of state development, is now no longer available to Africa. That, to me, is, I think discussing whether there's, there's things that can be done in terms of international relations to loosen some of those strictures um, or whether African institutions are interested in revisiting some of the uh, uh, rules that they issued uh, when the OAU was formed um, is, is one way of framing it. And we can talk about specific cases. Um, uh, but it also returns to this myth, which is brought up again and again, that Africa's problem is that the borders are somehow artificial, Right, that you have these borders that were drawn by Europeans and German in Berlin in 1885, and that Africa's problem is that the lines go crisscross all over the place and they make no sense. So it, it's as if, like, for example, the borders in European states are rational and normal, and as if they, they, they demarcate 
naturally occurring polities um, that belong together throughout history. Um, it, it, it obscures the fact, uh, uh, which is surprising to a lot of people, that the fact of living together in an arbitrarily contained space for a long period of time can, in fact, create a national consciousness. Um, that's the story of Eritrea. Eritrea has no unity and has no existence in history except for the fact that it lived separately as administered by Italy for several decades. And that was apparently strong enough to cause them to fight for several decades of very brutal war for their own independence. Um, the boundaries may be artificial at some point in the past, but they're real today and they can express a shared history um, and a shared uh, consciousness. And for that reason, just to point out that they were artificial when they were made is actually not very uh, revealing. Um, now, this reconfiguration, whether we're talking in the mode of state collapse or in terms of weak uh, absorbing the strong, can obviously be violent. But what's important to analyze is not uh, whether it's violent or not, uh, although that's for many other reasons important, but it's to understand what the warring parties represent. Um, do they represent some uh, uh, nexus of local interests or are they simply... Uh, uh, bandits in some sense. And I think the best way to get a sense of that is to look at how they're funded. Are they funded externally? Are they funded by natural resource rents? Or are they funded in some sense locally representing some kind of national aspiration? And if you look at the trajectory of different African liberation movements, the ones that have uh, been successful not only in taking power but in transforming themselves into um, successful governments, um, uh, uh, you find it's the ones that were in some sense funded themselves. The RPF in Rwanda was not funded by any external power. Even what they got from Uganda was relatively limited. It was funded by an extensive uh, covert network of fundraising run by themselves, run by a few people who funded the movement. Uganda got a Museveni in Uganda got a little bit from Libya in 1983 or something, but for the most part, he lived uh, off of Ugandans. Um, that affects how the movement treats the people in the, in the territory it controls. If you depend for revenue on um, the, uh, the people who you're organizing, you're much more likely to treat them well than if you're getting money from the United States or the Soviet Union um, or from the sale of diamonds and gold. So if you look, for example, now at West Africa, at the movements which emerged in Sierra Leone and Liberia, there's an external element with Libya and Burkina Faso sort of fomenting them and then them destabilizing each other. But basically they had little connection to any political idea or ideal or to the people they were controlling because they were they, their, their revenues, their survival didn't depend on their relations with those people. Um, uh, so I, I also think uh, transitioning to this question of aid, I think it's important to separate these questions of – the aid question and aid's effects on government governance in Africa from the question of state collapse and how we should uh, approach it or feel about it uh, or even talk about it and diagnose it. Um, uh, the states, uh, in some sense, are – we have to grasp the genealogy of them. They weren't – yes, it's true that, you know, Europeans left in 1960 uh, and left behind states and uh, Edward referred to – you know, whether the moral preconditions for the success of those states are there. But the fact that those states are not success, successful on the terms of modern European states is a bit beside the, the point. You have to first ask what those states were designed to do, what they were invented for, um, and notice the continuities between the structure of the colonial states and what you find now in terms of predatory nature. They were dissolve, designed to solve certain problems. And institutions were made uh, to solve them, you know, to suppress native unrest. And so you have uh, garrisons around large towns so they could quickly surround them. Uh, 
you have uh, certain productive things, mines or something in the periphery, and you need to get them out to, to a port or something. And so the whole state is designed to extract revenue so that it's not a burden on the, on the central government um, and to not have people participate in politics but to prevent them from participating in politics, to keep them quiet and working and productive so that you can get uh, cream off, for example, the agricultural um, surplus. And so you'll have economic structures created to do just that um, so that you don't have to get a subsidy. You don't have to get extra – you don't have to bother the Ministry of Colonial Affairs to send you more money. This is the motivations of colonial officials. You want to keep your staff small. Oh, very very little time left. Um, uh, uh, The aid question, um, since it came up a lot, I think it's impossible really to talk about it anymore unless you – disaggregate the purposes for which the money is given. To point out that some some outrageous number that was given and then nothing has happened is, is misleading because it was given for different purposes in different places. Um, and the, 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 the danger, in my view, uh, 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 the way aid can cause damage is by separating the executive branches of governments from the people that they're ruling. And that's one of the reasons why I think the performance of many African democracies has been very uh, 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 unsatisfactory. Democracies in normal countries are about raising tax revenue and bargaining and deciding how to spend it. Um, in Africa, tax effort tends to be very low. Executives can, executive branches can get funds directly from donors through, through aid programs, and they bargain with them about what the money should be spent for. And parliaments and people uh, don't have much to say about it. And as a result, the parliaments tend not to have much power and can't serve as a check. That is the structural damage to democracy that aid c- can cause, whatever it's intended for, whatever the purpose is and whether it's effective or not. So if you, and simply going and auditing whether the aid is effective or not on its narrow terms is not going to fix that problem. It can be a little better at getting health clinics in place, but it's still going to have this damaging effect on, on the quality of democracy and incidentally also on a government's incentive to improve its business environment. Because if you don't need to raise taxes to have revenue to function, what do you care whether your companies can, can survive? So the final, I guess, to wrap up, um, it's not really in our power to either build the institutions which are going to make African state strong, nor is it in our power to cause them to collapse or prevent them from collapsing if they're going to do it. Uh, we, don't have, we don't know how to do it. We don't have the political will or the money to do it. Um, and we should instead recognize that Africa has always had a history of its own, and the course of events in Africa, in almost all cases, have been determined by what African groups organ- organize and acting together do, whether there is in the past as liberation movements, as governments now, as economic actors. The fact that that's usually invisible to us because we're obsessed with our own place in Africa and what we do doesn't mean that that's not the essential underlying reality. And we can either try and grasp that better and join our own efforts to that and revisit and rethink how we give aid so that it doesn't damage, uh, be modest about how much help it can do, but it should at least not cause the sorts of political damage that um, that I uh, uh, just mentioned. And there's a lot of other things to say, but I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. Um, there will be more time uh, uh, for you to make those, uh, make additional points during the Q&A. But before we move on to Q&A, I, uh, Ed, do you want to take a minute or two to reflect on what I said? Or well, I, I saw you scribbling, so I assume. Yeah, just a minute. Uh, I want to reemphasize that my... Contention is that familism 
is not evil, but organic, natural constituent of African life, out of which, in the course of time, there can emerge African solutions. Tribalism is also the same. Now, as to the claim uh, that uh, you know we have nothing to do with this, I notice that when these states uh, implode, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, and so on, the whole international community comes in there to patch it up and rebuild it instead of allowing the natural organic forces to emerge. So on the one hand, we're told that we are powerless and we're just spectators and we have illusions and delusions of, of power and control. But on the other, I see that whenever they stumble and slide, there is the intervention. And then there is the even the pieces of the dead body of the state are kept alive, sometimes uh, as with the NGOs in Somalia. They used to go in and pay for security for the NGOs to distribute the food in the full light of the TV cameras, thereby feeding the warlords and the gangsters that were the remnants of the Somali state. So we have much – we don't run the show, but our role has been important enough to be harmful. Thank you. Um, we'll open it now to question and answer. So would you please wait, I mean, raise your hand first and then wait until the microphone reaches you. And if you could please say who you are and uh, form the question in a form of a question. Yes, right here in front. Here in front. A writer, but I, I primarily write about urban development issues, economic development and architecture and those kind of things here. So I'm very ignorant about the politics of Africa, even though I'm quote-unquote an African-American. I know nothing about Africa. So, But I would like to ask a basic question to anyone who can um, would like to uh, approach it. Is it possible to quote-unquote solve the problems of Africa by centralizing the countries in a way that maybe the European Union has attempted to do to produce one type of currency and to try to diminish the, the divisiveness between the different tribes and the different cultures and so on? Is, is, is there any way to, to simplify the, the tragedies yeah. of the various countries? Thank you. Um, if, I may, uh, if I may answer that question... And um, first of all, I'm assuming that when you say centralizing, you're talking about centralization of decision-making within the same country. And not a... <coughs> well, <coughs> first of all, let's start within the country itself. And um, I agree with Ed that a state structure that was left by colonialists were established for certain particular purposes, which may not necessarily be that in the interest of Africans. If you take a country, for example, you can organize a country along three main lines. The first one is a unitary system of government. That's the European model. That's what they established in Africa. Now, under the unitary system, all decisions were in power, were concentrated at the capital city. It's like, you know, all decisions in Britain, all decisions are taken in London, in uh, Paris, all decisions are in France, all decisions are taken uh, in Paris. 
that model was not suitable for Africa. It was not suitable for Africa because it was Africa is uh, every African country is multi-ethnic. So when you centralize power, you always uh, give an incentive to one particular group, ethnic group, to, uh, to hijack that power and use that power to advance its interests and exclude everybody else. So it's become something like a political and economic apartheid. You've seen that in many, many, many countries in Africa. Okay? So that unitary system of government was dead wrong, not suitable for Africa. The second type of uh, governance is the federal system, like the U.S., for example, where you have decentralization <laughs> of power. Okay? Now, the third system is confederal. Okay? Now, that confederal system even requires greater devolution of authority and power. Now, get this. That confederal system was Africa's own indigenous system of government. Mali Empire was a great confederacy. Songhai was a confederacy. Great Zimbabwe was a confederacy. The problem, the mistake that we made was that after independence, we never went back to build upon our confederal system of government. Now, the modern equivalent is Switzerland. Switzerland is a confederation of 13 cantons. Okay? So we need to have some kind of uh, rethinking of the system of government which is suitable for us, not what the Europeans left behind. The Europeans centralized the system so there's always an incentive for either a soldier or some ethnic group to capture that power. And once they capture that power, you know, they practice what we call the politics of exclusion. And the politics of exclusion has been the bane of Africa's development. You notice that every time there is a civil war, tension or strife, it is always, always started by those politically marginalized or excluded groups. So we have a solution, and that solution is for each African country to practice the politics of inclusion. That's not a tall order. If the blacks and the whites in South Africa could get down together and establish a system by which they can share power, we can do the same in Zimbabwe, we can do the same in Sudan, and we can do the same in many African countries. Um, any other one? Uh, right here in front. Yes. Uh, Merrill Smith with the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. Uh, Dr. Aite, you mentioned uh, the uh, problems of refugees uh, several times quite eloquently. One of the problems that we have been addressing is what we call the problem of warehousing refugees, keeping them in camps without the right to work or freedom of movement. Not only is this a violation of their right to work and freedom of movement under the 1951 Convention, it also has uh, exacerbated conflict. It's been a breeding ground for, well, R&R facilities for troops and so forth. And you point that out in, in your book, too, as well. But I want to know if you or any of the other panelists have any idea of a solution for this. Obviously, these refugee camps are sustained by foreign aid, usually in humanitarian budgets. Should we cut it off altogether, just stop it? Uh, is there a smart aid alternative? Is there some way of perhaps aiding civil society institutions in those countries to do refugee protection rather than having international agencies drop in, like with parachutes and whatnot? <laughs> Any one of you. <laughs> well, uh, it's pretty obvious that if um, in European history we had the current refugee institutions, the UN institutions and the NGOs, 
then uh, Europe today would be filled with giant camps for sort of uh, leftover Visigoths, uh, defeated Ostrogoths, dis- disinherited Romans, forever after maintaining their identities and resentments in a state of perfect freshness. So you would go there and they would still want to get back to whatever piece of geological history they have in their mind. Uh, so the answer is that uh, it, it should be understood that there is uh, feeding overnight and resettlement tomorrow. If that's not possible... Don't go, because otherwise you're creating the uh, horrible situations. And, of course, in the Rwanda, uh, in, the, in the Congo, East Congo, Rwanda situation, uh, that was the exemplary worst case. But they're all bad cases. So if you can't resettle, don't do it. Uh, it's, in the long run, it's more cruel to interfere stupidly. You know, do no harm. Um, uh, more? Yeah. Are you going to ask something? I was going to, but it's, yeah, go it's quick. I mean, uh, uh, I think refugee camps should be banned as a tool for dealing with refugee problems. Not won't be surprised to hear me agree with you on that. Um, uh, I think there are ways to to support and help them, uh, uh, refugees, but by dispersing them throughout states and working with local governments, which are the units that tend to disperse the kinds of services that refugees consume, but in a way which benefits everybody who lives in that particular zone. Um, that neutralizes, in some sense, the security risk um, uh, uh, and hopefully facilitates local integration and, and uh, over time. Um, but there's also governments that have taken matters into their own hands against the uh, advice of the UN, um, notably the Rwandan government, which dismantled the refugee camps on its own because it realized the UN was never going to do it, and it attacked them. And everyone went home except for some others, and a lot of people died. And the right way to analyze that morally is to ask, as um, Ed was saying, whether the costs of doing that were greater than the costs of doing nothing. Often in humanitarian analysis and human rights analysis, we, we, we analyze the costs of action and tee them up and criticize people when uh, those costs are paid. But no one ever uh, analyzes or calculates the costs of doing nothing, and refugee camps are a very good example of that over time. Uh, uh, yeah, I just want to add you know, a point of clarification uh, in dealing with refugees. There are three types of aids. Number one, there is economic development assistance, which is the normal foreign aid, and then there's humanitarian aid, and then there is uh, military aid. Now, there will always be, uh, you know, the demand for humanitarian assistance. And I think when we talk about aid, we're referring specifically to economic development assistance, not to humanitarian assistance. Maybe we should start calling government-to-government transfers. Yeah. That's where we may change the line. I mean, maybe we should be talking about that, but that's not what people talk about when they talk about the aid debate. And there's actually very little so-called economic development assistance that we give to Africa or anywhere else. Almost all of what we give is our large-scale health programs, especially, as you mentioned, in the money that's been quadrupled in the Bush administration. And the reason we like health programs is that they tend to work much better than other kinds of aid programs. Um, one reason is that you can avoid the state, uh, but also because they have incredible political support domestically, and there's almost unlimited amounts of money that can be used for that. But we should not. We should stop being surprised when the money we spend on, for example, health-related aid programs fail to cause economic growth. That's not what they're supposed to do. And so it's, it's disingenuous to keep arguing, to take the number from those and say, well, but, you know, the economy c- c- contracted. All right. Just because it's called aid doesn't mean it's going to contribute to growth. 
I'm going to try to get questions from every quarter, so uh, in the back there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I have just uh, two questions and then uh, a comment. Maybe I should start. Oh, could, uh, could you dispense with the comment? I, I don't mean to be rude, but we need to move on because other people have questions as well. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I just noticed that the uh, I'm from Africa and from West Africa, but my my um, what I've seen is the money we have been injecting in Africa since the 1960 is not going anywhere. 148 billion, like he's saying, is going into corruption every year. So we gotta come up with a new way of uh, helping Africa. Now, the, uh, to me, uh, the the best way to af help Africa now is to make sure that the institutions are respected, uh, meaning the. Uh, some type of transparency when the when the funds are managed. So, do you have or do you suggest any way of a new way of doing this thing? Meaning, we cannot let this money go all the time. We have to, you know, f find new ways. This is the first question. Second question is, uh, we can keep continue continue helping Africa, but I don't think. I'm scared because I don't think it's going anywhere because, like he's saying, he was saying the artificial boundaries, like it's like we, when we said the Gambia and Senegal and Guinea, those are very tiny nations. And as long as the economy of those nations is very small, the money will go down, the economy, the economy will go down, the money will be delinked to the euro or will continue going. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those nations will go more and more and more poor. And do you think that we might, we have to think about reuniting the nation in making it one nation, like like Gambia and Senegal and those nations can start thinking, putting their effort together in order to come up with a better country? Thank you very much. There was uh, another question in the back there. Shall we get it as well? Uh, my name is uh, Deng Nial. I'm a trade investment officer for the government of Southern Sudan Mission in Washington, D.C. Uh, going back to the topic of uh, let African uh, governments uh, fail, can we equally say let uh, problematic situations happening in the world continue to uh, exist and fail, such as disengaging from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, not sending aid to Jordan, not sending aid to Egypt? My question is, in the context of Sudan, since I'm from Southern Sudan, Hypothetically, even though the topic actually is contrary to reality, uh, because uh, who gives who the power or the authority to let who fail or succeed? So coming back to the question of Sudan, we have the census in uh, April 2008. We have general elections 2009, 2011. We have referendum that southern Sudanese can vote to become an independent nation state or remain as one country. So in this hypothetical setting, let African governments fail. If the international community disengages from Sudan, what is going to be the situation in Sudan? Because okay. we heard about uh, never again in Rwanda, not on our dime, and all these phrases. Are we going to hear, oh, my God, it happened again? So what's going to happen if we disengage? Thanks. Thank you. 
on all of this, quickly on Sudan, the short answer is if you wait around waiting for the United States or any external power to come and fix it, you're going to wait a long time. The, the answer is the successful states and the successful movements in Africa are the ones that uh, ignore the international institutions to some extent, decide on their own vision and organize themselves and just get it done and do it. And that's the story of the rebel movements, which are now successful governments. Um, and it's a story of actually many successful governments that were never rebel movements. The destiny is in your hands. Stop, everyone stop looking around for the so-called international community to have an idea about the, about the, the issue. Um, on Senegambia, that's a great example because Gambia is a perfect example of a country which in a rational world shouldn't exist. It's this little strip along a river. Why is it there? Well, there's a long colonial history about why. Um, but it, they actually did try. There was something called Senegambia, which existed for a few years, and it collapsed. And so before we start recommending randomly amalgamating African states or having a big union and doing it centrally, um, and in, in effect making the same kinds of externally imposed mistakes that were made in the Conference of Berlin in 1885, which are going to cause other political problems which you can't even foresee now. Why don't we look at, for example, the Senegambia case and understand why it didn't work, because there are real reasons why in each of the cases. And finally, um, on the question of corruption and aid again, let me just restate. The problem we're posing is a political problem, and there are no technical solutions to a political problem. <clears throat> the problem, the reason money is wasted and not spent well and so forth and hasn't had effects is because it's it's given uh, uh, outside of any political system which can survey it in terms of a media or a parliament and so forth. And there's no audit or special thing that experts can sit around and do to make it work properly. It's a political problem. There are no technical solutions to it. Uh, I think it's really not useful, especially here with the Cato Institute, to deplore the fact that aid money is wasted. Uh, when it's wasted, it does less harm. In fact, a lot of the harm has been done from, uh, you know, uh, sort of reckless NGOs have done tremendous harm. The plague of NGOs, which means non-government organizations, means non-responsible organizations that nobody supervises. Well-meaning enthusiasts is sort of persuade people to give them money and then go do harm around the place. So none of this bothers me. But it does bother me methodologically when people talk about corruption, you see, if the state is a functioning, productive entity, corruption is an evil thing. And Anglo-Saxons love to go around saying, oh, you're corrupt, he's corrupt, the other guy's corrupt. But when the state is harmful, corruption can be positive. Visualize, for example, the man in charge of buying weapons for a West African state. He steals the money instead of buying rifles. It means there are fewer soldiers running around pointing guns at civilians and extorting money from them. He takes the money, he eats it, and he feeds his family. The one, familism, in this case, is a positive force. Let's not use this, term, this kind of terms like corruption and so on and so forth. But again, I protest at the idea that we have nothing to do with it. Uh, it was mentioned correctly by, the, by, by uh, Mar that the state of Sudan was actually the range of slave raiding from Khartoum, from the Nile River. And this, it was Europeans who then made the boundary around this absurdity and created Sudan. Since that, then 
there was a process whereby the British, they, the British used to have the so-called Sudan service. Sudan was so exalted in the British eye that the Sudan service was the most prestigious branch of the entire British foreign and colonial service. And they would only take Oxford Blues, for example, to, to run Sudan. And their administration was so great, of course, that this abortion then grew and was maintained and reinforced and handed over. And since that time, Sudan has been a beneficiary of NGOs and multinational efforts. The Arab League has sustained the state of Sudan. The Arab League protects it in international fora, but has fed a lot of money in it. In his humanitarian mode, Osama bin Laden invested in Sudan. Khashoggi lost his money in, in the Sudan scheme, you know. And so everybody has come from outside to sustain Sudan. Sudan could become an, a genocidal abortion. And it is genocidal in regard to the South and Darfur, but you also realize that the day-to-day workings, without drama, without war, without violence, without Islam, slavery, and all that, day-to-day in Port Sudan, what the Sudanese state does is to extort money from fishermen and, and impede fishing, extort money from herders and impede them herding, and ruining what is, in fact, a wonderful place that everybody must go to because it has the world's best coral and fish, by the way. Yeah. Let me add a couple of points. I wish there was more corruption in Sudan, bottom line. Uh, let me add a couple of uh, points. Uh, one of the uh, questioners was asking whether the way should they disengage from um, uh, from Sudan. And um, see, it's very, very easy to say that if you look at the record of Western help to Africa, you know, the way should get out of uh, Sudan. Uh, but... <clears throat> We'll be making a mistake. We'll be making a mistake because, you see, part of the problem is you have very naive Western donors who have absolutely no clue as to how to really help Africa. And quite often, they themselves are problems. Now, look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, okay? Look at how the West dealt with the former Soviet Union. The West didn't go to the former Soviet Union and hand aid money over to communist regimes on promises of reform. The West did not do that. So why is the West doing the same thing in Africa? Where the West is giving money to these corrupt and incompetent African governments on promises of reform. You and I know that they're not going to reform those abominable systems. So in other words, you know, take a look at uh, how the West dealt with Poland, for example. The West didn't give uh, aid money to the communist regimes there. It helped groups like Solidarity. So why isn't the West helping Solidarity groups in Africa? And one of the ways by which you can help these Solidarity groups, as I indicated, okay, we're not saying that disengage completely, but you have to think smartly of the way of empowering civil society, the way of empowering Africans so that they themselves can instigate reform. And that's why I laid out the six critical institutions that Africans need. Now, it's not that the West is coming to Africa to instigate reform. Africans themselves would do it, so empower them. Take corruption, for example. In order to fight corruption, you need two key institutions. One, an independent media. Right now in Africa, we have an independent media in only eight African countries. 
The second is an independent judiciary to enforce the rule of law. We can talk all we want about corruption and curbing corruption, but so long as those independent institutions are not there, forget it. Um, in, in, a, in a very selfish and individualistic way, I will abuse my immense power here to ask the last question, and I, I will ask the, uh, all, the uh, all, the, um, all the speakers today to respond uh, just very briefly to two questions. One, is Botswana a success story? And two, is Botswana's success story, if you think it is a success story, in large part a result of them embracing pre-colonial... Um, tribal institutions uh, from before the, the, the British um, takeover of Botswana. Anybody wants to start? Well, I, from my African relatives, I've learned that magic and witchcraft are much misunderstood in the West. And in the name of this approach to life, I will refrain from using the name, mentioning the name of the country that you spoke about, this country that begins with B. And the reason I do that is this is classic magic procedure is because for years, whenever you talked about these things, they would say to you, ah, but look at Cote d'Ivoire. It's a wonderful success story. And Kenya, a wonderful success story. So I will refrain from mentioning the name of this country. All right. Uh, I would consider it a success. Um, uh, the fact that it's become such an emblem of success masks a number of continuing problems which Botswana themselves like to talk about and get frustrated that no one notices except them because everyone's looking for Botswana to be a success story. Um, but it unquestionably is in terms of its income levels, in terms of the responsibility of its government, its ability. I mean, it's on a fundamentally – has a fundamentally different aid relationship, for example, than most African states. Um, it, first of all, achieved independence significantly later than many other African states. I believe it was in 1966, which partially helped insulate it from some of the excesses of the early years of African nationalism. Botswana also faced, and I think this is a common thing you find in a number of well-performing states, a, a, a real security threat from South Africa, um, uh, which sort of focuses the mind and helps you uh, stay, uh, pay attention to things that matter. Um, uh, whether, But I, no, I don't think it's related to traditional so-called institutions. And I think it gets bandied around a lot in different formats that Africa's problem is that you have these artificial Western things and what you really need to, to go back to the so-called traditional institutions. So almost any traditional institution that you pick up uh, and look at is, in fact, very modern and invented re relatively recent, recently. In fact, whole tribes, which people now think have great antiquity, um, were created sometimes arbitrarily by district administrators <coughs> to settle some local political problem. Then it gets anchored, and the people themselves think it's real. The fact that Southern Africans eat maize, and if you ask them, the reason they eat maize, and they have to have maize, is, you know, it's because that's what they've always eaten. It was introduced in the late 1800s and became a status crop. It became something that, you know, uh, uh, high-status people eat. Um, so Botswana is successful because it's a modern state, a successful modern state, which is integrated into the global economy uh, in ways which uh, – and, and it has found a formula for managing its own domestic constituencies. It's not because it did something traditional. And George? Yeah, well, I disagree with Mary a little bit. I think Botswana is successful because it's the only African country which went back and built upon its own indigenous institutions. I mean, uh, there were markets in Africa before the colonialists came. 
uh, there was participatory democracy in Africa before the colonialists came. Um, this is what we should have done. We should have gone back to build upon these institutions. We never did. <coughs> we brought in, you know, Marxism, socialism, and that sort of thing, which is totally alien to Africa. And that's why we have this particular economic atrophy in many African countries. Thank you very much to all of you. Please join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you. Thank you.